Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Complementary Training Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to John Light. John Light is a man of many skills. He was a sports scientist and SNC coach and now works in high-performance sport New Zealand and looks after athlete management systems. John might be the most famous for his YouTube channel Excel Tricks for Sport, where he shared his tricks and taught numerous sports scientists Excel Tricks, including myself. I consider John Light my bigger brother since he was so helpful to me in numerous ways. Without further ado, enjoy Insights by John Light. As always, I want to thank our sponsor Smartabase for making this podcast possible. Enjoy the episode. Smartabase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts and research. Smarterbase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, OmegaWave, EliteForm and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hi there, I'm talking to John Light uh, in this episode. Um, first of all, I stumbled on John Light's work while I was in Hammarby, I think 2012 or 2013, uh, it was actually Darcy Norman who pinpointed to his uh, YouTube channel called Excel Tr- Tricks for Sport. And since then, I think I contacted John and he was uh, pretty much a, a big brother to me, um, you know, providing, um, you know, Excel advice and also, um, I would say, coaching and life uh, advice. So I'm more than thankful to, to John and I'm really pleased that he found some time to do this podcast with me. So, hello, John, and how are you going? Fantastic. Yep, this is. A, we live in a great time and a great industry, and uh, it's always enjoyable to talk to people who are like-minded and who share the same problems, frustrations, and and enjoy the same kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. You, you were pretty much a a goldmine for me, uh, as I said, with with the advices and everything. Some, a lot of coaches are familiar with you and are familiar with your work, uh, as as you said, especially because. Um, coaches and sports scientists, I would say, are stumbling on similar problems. Uh, and you pretty much provide solutions and how-to guides, especially when it comes to Excel. Uh, but anyway, for, for the listener who don't know who, who John Light is, can you, you know, introduce yourself? Yeah, I am uh, sort of 20 years into the industry now. And for the first 15 years, I worked as a sports scientist, I was training athletes, I was traveling with teams, I was doing physiology, strength and conditioning, performance analysis work and and loving it just like we all do. But uh, five years ago I changed careers and moved into the systems area and so I now work for um, the same organization but I now sit behind the scenes and I help build software tools such as an athlete management system, I help manage our medical practice management tools, so all the physios and doctors, what they use, 
and uh, little things as well, which makes me very powerful in the business and that I decide who gets what computer, who gets what phone, because we want to make sure people have the right tools. So if someone needs a Mac, you get them a Mac. If someone needs an iPhone 7, you get them the iPhone 7. If someone needs a Surface Pro, you get them that. And so I, I help break down the barriers between our IT team and the people who are working on the on the coal face, the strength and conditioning coaches and the doctors and the physios. So I've got a great uh, day job. And when I go home, I do a little bit of Excel work either for myself in some of my own projects or for a few clients that I, I help around the world. Some of them are with rugby, some of them are with football, and uh, um, a few people who, who do some unusual stuff that uh, never makes the headlines. So I've, I've got quite an interesting life, and, and uh, it's all stemmed from that that 15 years where I was actually at the coalface working with, with teams and athletes and going to the Olympic Games and and uh, and things like that. So I love the industry. I've been fortunate in that I've, I've had a good career, but I've been able to move out of that coalface work and, and still stay involved with, with elite sport, which is which is where my passion lies. So we, we actually, I didn't mention that you are with uh, High Performance Sports New Zealand, so based in New Zealand. Uh, have you, I mean, you had a coaching background as well. Like, what, what's your, I would say, history of, you know, coaching and switching to the, the manager, uh, managerial role? Yeah, I had three stages really of my career. The first stage was incredibly exciting for me. I, I finished my, my studies and, and got a job straight away, very luckily. Um, and I spent about seven years working in a performance lab that, was fortunate to have the contract for all of New Zealand's elite athletes. So I probably did a thousand VO2 max tests, a thousand blood lactate tests, a thousand isokinetic strength tests, a thousand training programs, and um, for every sport from judo to football to hockey to rowing to cycling to swimming to athletics and and uh, probably working 80-hour weeks for, for most of that seven-year period, and it was very exciting, and it was at a time when the industry was a lot um, less competitive, so the pressure to do everything perfectly wasn't wasn't there like I think it is now, and, and so I just had this wonderful environment where I was able to learn on the job. I didn't necessarily get told what to do or how to do it. I just had to work it out, and um, I was very much a generalist who wasn't an expert at anything, but then I got fortunate with a, a relationship with someone and he uh, gave me a role as the national sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach for New Zealand football, so the men's national team and the women's national team and I toured the world for three years with them and uh, and with everyone else, so under 15 boys team, under 17 girls team, everyone you could think of and, and it was very busy. Um, I'd arrive home from uh, three weeks in, in Italy with one team and, and be greeted at the airport by my boss who would tell me that tomorrow I'm going somewhere else with a different team and so it was uh, um, permanently busy but that led to um, a jump and I moved into field hockey and the advantage of doing that is it brought me back into the government funded sports industry and, and that's a very supportive environment. We have um, a, a really fantastic environment for our Olympic sports in that we've got an entire network around coaches and athletes and um, 
I mentioned coaches first because that's the philosophy we have in New Zealand. We have coaching at the top of the pile, and if the coaches don't know enough, which I know is a common complaint, we work with them very hard and mentor them and get them advice. And so we have a group of coaches every year who um, are part of a program, and they'll spend uh, days with people like the All Blacks coach and other international experts to, to help develop them as coaches, which makes the job of the sports scientists a lot easier. So I had five or six years in a role as a, as a lead sports scientist for football, then field hockey, and um, that saw me again go to Olympic Games, be really at the coalface, but able to, to guide the ship myself. I was... Um, almost a, you know, a lone cowboy out there doing everything myself and in the early stages of the industry when GPS was new, when heart rate was new, and it was really exciting time. Um, but at the end of the 2008 Olympics is when I decided to, to pull out of that and um, was able to, fortunately, because I developed some, uh, I guess, geek skills. I was good on the computer. I was good with technology. I was able to, to transition into a different role and, and therefore be at home more because uh, I've got a family now and sports science is, is a pretty hard career when, you're, um, when you've got a family at home. So I've been very, very fortunate to be able to make that last transition into the support part of the business where I'm sitting behind the scenes. And uh, I had four hours yesterday with a, a strength and conditioning coach who um, I'm building some individual tools for, so a strength template, a monitoring tool for his particular purposes and and uh, it's really satisfying to be able to help an individual who's doing what I did 15 years ago now. So he is uh, he's doing the 80 hour weeks, he's the one with the athletes in the gym every morning at 6 o'clock and out on the rugby field at 8 o'clock at night and so on. So uh, I now get to live that life without having to, uh, to be in the gym and, and out on the field. Uh, you mentioned um, All Blacks, just a quick question, um, you know, what in your opinion, makes them the most successful team in the world, pretty much in the history of sport. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. Everyone is um, everyone's obsessed with with the team that wins. Um, I note with amusement often when a team like Leicester City won the Premier League this year that suddenly everyone's interested in what they're doing. Um, and in many cases. They're, they're doing lots of good things, you know, they might be doing particular strategies for nutrition or otherwise, but they're not the key things uh, that, that cause success. In the, in the case of the All Blacks, the, uh, the absolute fever that New Zealand rugby players have to play for their country is, is so great that um, you can offer players a million dollars a year to go and play in France or Japan and they'll say no because they want to play for the All Blacks and um, they'll stay in New Zealand and play rugby in New Zealand because they want to be an All Black and that's more important to them than anything else. And so we have a, a very large supply of, of great athletes who play rugby well, but the philosophy that they have is very special. They, they take people who in any other life would be, um, you know, digging a ditch somewhere and doing some sort of labouring job but they happen to be skilled at rugby and they are turned into a, a good human being and a good athlete and a good rugby player by, by good coaches and in a, an environment that demands excellence. So if you go into the All Blacks environment, which I've been fortunate to a couple of times, you'll see people who are doing everything they can to be better and who are um, internally motivated so the coach doesn't have to tell a player to turn up on time because the other players make that happen. And um, 
their whole philosophy is based around that excellence and the trust. And if you're a um, if you're a dickhead and if you've got an ego, you're not going to make it in the All Blacks. And and that has seemed to uh, seem to work. But we've had our failures as well. You know, we've lost two or three World Cups in in recent times that we should have won by making mistakes. So the uh, the environment's not perfect, and team sports are very uh, random sometimes uh, a bad game or a good game or a bad refereeing performance or something like that can turn a match and we've won the last two World Cups and everyone thinks we're great now but we also have had some bad periods where we've had to uh, consolidate and get get better and I think at, at the moment they have some amazing players and they have some fantastic coaches and it's working, so uh, um, people are are, uh, are scared of us, and and and, uh, and that's a nice place to be. It's a good momentum to have. <laughs> uh, I think it is. Yeah, we have similar issue. Um, I would say we have an issue with the national team with uh, soccer. Um, our junior side is quite successful. Like a year or two years ago, we won the World Cup under twenty one. Um, so we do have a a, a talent, uh, but then the um, uh, the first team or, or um, the senior team is, you know, not not successfully um, getting into 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 cups and tournaments. Um, so one of the rationale might be that some of our players, once they become, you know, well paid and playing for um, foreign clubs, they just don't give up. Pretty much, they don't give a fuck about the national team. So. Um, it's a good culture to have, and I guess you know New Zealand is a small country and pretty much isolated. So everybody wants to play for their country, and that's a great, great culture to have. Uh, not sure about the other sports. Say, is that the case with say other sports like soccer? Soccer is an interesting one because uh, we don't really have a strong domestic competition. If you're want to be a good player you have to leave the country and go and play in one of the European leagues and um, that means that you're no longer uh, close to the national coach and you can't work with them and so in New Zealand with rugby we have uh, a very strong competition and players that can stay in New Zealand and play in that competition are accessible by the national coach, they're accessible by the national medical and strength and conditioning team and they can work with the local professional clubs and make everyone uh, work together nicely but um, we do have that for some of our sports so we're um, very short period of time, it's about 15 days away from the Olympics now and we have two or three sports, rowing is one, where we have that same environment. We have a training centre. It's in a small town in New Zealand. There's a wonderful um, lake that they can row on, and there's about 100 rowers there every day who are just smashing themselves to be in the eight or in the four or the single sculler that gets represent uh, gets to represent New Zealand, and, and that training environment is also complemented by wonderful support staff a good technology program and, and most importantly very good coaches and um, a local supportive community so we do have pockets in other sports but um, soccer is the biggest game in the world and it's something that we're uh, we're not great at we have some individual players in the Premier League but uh, not enough to make a good enough team so uh, once in a while we do okay we have made the World Cup a couple of times but for us we don't have the numbers we have a small, a small population and um, we find talent and we try and hang on to it so we're hoping for our best Olympics ever in Rio and um, you'll see a few black singlets winning medals hopefully in the next few weeks. Let's hope so. <laughs> 
going getting back to you so i uh, usually say you are pretty much two people so one 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 guy by by day and uh, another person by night what do you mean by that well i tried very um i made great intention early on that that i was going to try some of this excel work um i almost by accident made a few videos on youtube about five years ago and um my intention was not really to, to to have this double life but things have snowballed pretty quickly i get i get five to ten emails a day from people asking me questions um some of them are asking me to do work for them others are um just students wanting to learn and and um it becomes quite addictive and i've been very fortunate in that i've had involvement with several people who i'd never uh, would have come across otherwise and because I live in New Zealand it's a long way away to Europe and, and America and the rest of the world and so um, you're doing little Excel projects for people who might be at a Premier League club, they might be at a American football club or an AFL club and it's really good fun so I, I have this double life where I can go home, see my kids, spend some time with the family and then at about nine o'clock at night, I'll sit down at my computer and do two or three hours work on a Excel project for someone that um, that I may never have met, but who is trying to achieve something with their with their job, be it with you know football, rugby, or or, or something else. And I really enjoy that, and it's become uh, um, like I say, a little bit addictive because you want to be uh, helping these people get better. Do you get some sleep? I sleep between about uh, midnight and, and, and about six, so uh, um, during the week I don't get much sleep, but I try and have uh, uh, a good sleep every uh, every Saturday and Sunday. So uh, you, you started Excel Tricks for Sport. Um, what was the motivation behind it? I mean, uh, you, you help a tremendous number of uh, sports scientists and strength conditioning coaches, you know, myself included. Um, so, you know, why did you start? Excel Tricks for Sport YouTube channel. Well, I think for me, um, I'll take it back one further step in that. Why, why did I become good at Excel? And I, I mentioned earlier that I was, I was early in the sports science generation. I, was, I started my profession in about 1997, and so the, the pressure wasn't as high as it is now. There was no social media. There was no um, real opportunity to, uh, to, to gain access to what other people were doing other than once a year at a conference. So for me, I would be on the side of a field with some athletes, um, and I'd be having an idea about something, be it training load or uh, some way to monitor athletes, or I was also doing a bit of performance analysis work, so I'd have ideas about that, and I could go back to my hotel room if I was on a tour or back to my desk if I was at home and explore that idea with Excel. I could write a little sample data set and make some outputs with some charts or pivot tables and I could look at the data and say, is this an interesting idea or not? And maybe one out of ten turned out to be an interesting idea and I could run with that and it could add to my profession. So I, I did that for years and and I was always pretty proud of myself for sometimes coming up with interesting ideas. Then when I uh, was trying to end my sports science career around 2008-2009, I, I wanted to get a job in Europe because my wife is from Europe and um, uh, we thought we'd live over there and I applied for several jobs and I didn't even get an interview with um, with them and, and it made me realise that even though I'd worked for 15 years and had been the, the national lead of several sports, uh, no one knew who I was so I thought that 
I could serve those two interests. I could help people out. I could stay connected to the industry and I could get some new friends, if you like, uh, people like yourself who I would never have met otherwise. I was able to gain um, a little bit more of a network and, and uh, I'd been doing training work with people in my office a lot. I'd done uh, YouTube, or not YouTube, but I'd done video um, training files for people. I'd done seminars at the office for the strength and conditioning coaches and otherwise. So I had a background in doing that so it didn't seem like a big jump so I made a couple of videos there was already hundreds and hundreds of videos on Excel on YouTube so I didn't want to do that um, just general stuff so I thought I'd do something for for S&C coaches and yeah the response was good so I just kept going and I've, I've made about 120 videos now and um, I've got a list of about 30 or 40 that I I'm interested in making but you know it's hard to find time these days it's uh, um, too many ideas in your head, probably something that, that you can sympathize with. You recently created one or two courses for Udemy, right? Yeah, I put them on uh, Vimeo. So they're just series of videos that um, were a bit more connected than the YouTube videos. So YouTube were just random ideas mostly. Here's something that you might find interesting. Whereas this Vimeo uh, channel allowed me to create uh, a series of 30 or 40 videos that we're all linked to each other. So one of them is just a general, here's a whole lot of key things that you need to know. And the other one was a project. So here's a blank sheet of paper. And if you follow all of these videos, you're going to end up with something at the end that you can use. And I like the thought of that because um, hopefully what people do is they follow the process and they tangent off on their own. So they get 15 videos in and they've realized that actually they can do this and they can, uh, rather than doing it the way I'm doing it, they can do a six-day workout or a, or a four-week workout or they can do something differently. And I really like the thought of having people catch the bug, if you like, follow your process, realize that it's, it's possible, and then go off and, and create something for themselves that, uh, that really helps them. And, and uh, those Vimeo courses were really just an attempt to be a bit more coherent and have more of a start to finish, um, I guess, series than, than my YouTube stuff, which is quite random. I also like, the, like to watch those videos for the sake of you know, learning. Uh, and as you said, building something yourself rather than just listening to theory, solving your own problem, I, I think, in my opinion, is the best way to actually learn and, and you know, to make re retention of that knowledge by, by solving your own, uh, you know, day-to-day -day issues. Yes, totally. I, I'm not a big... Um I'm not a big learner in terms of reading or watching videos or doing podcasts for the hell of it. If I've got a problem I need to solve, that's when I'll go looking for information. So um, I do find now that, that some of these projects I work on for people, um, for me, I'll, I'm saying yes to the job because I don't know how to do it yet because that'll make me go and learn a, a new trick or um, have to research something. I tend not to. It's a, a weakness of mine, like I mentioned, that I don't sit and read books constantly. I'm more about doing, and I spend my time doing rather than just sort of uh, casting my net wide. I, I really like solving a problem and learning that way rather than uh, just sort of hoping that, that I might pick up a book and find something useful in it. I guess that uh, that's, a, that's a fine strategy. What, what concerns me as a... As a, as a practitioner um, that, that's similar to that, um, 
is that sometimes you want to you wanna have a big picture. So uh, rather than en- ending up in, I would say, a dead end, starting from a, from a wrong position and then trying to solve things, and then at the end you figure out, oh, there's an easier way, which happened numerous times uh, in my case. Um, sometimes getting the idea of, you know, of the big picture um, first and then trying to solve things um, might help to end up those, I would say, local minimas. So the uh, you know solution that that works, but it could be much much better. It could be expanded um, in in the future, um, and also you know you pretty much now I don't read the books um, you know in details. I just skim them, uh, and then when I actually need the information, I know where to look it for. That's right. I. Um I've considered several times and people have asked me several times why I don't just go out and start my own business and do this stuff full time rather than in the in the middle of the night and the reason is is because I love my day job I get to work with about a hundred people um, and there's probably fifty uh, percent of those people are either Olympians or PhDs or both and some of them have been national coaches some of them have been um, working in business circles and they're now working in sport and so the conversations that I have with these people day in day out are where I get those reference points so they're the ones reading the books they're the ones saying hey you should have a look at this and they'll they'll sometimes even give me the book when they've finished it and say this chapter here has got something that's really interesting and so I I love that I love the water cooler conversations that I get to have with people and I consider myself a bit of a high achiever in every environment other than my day job where I'm probably near the bottom of the pile at my work. Like I say, I've got people who have who are 60 years old and have spent 40 years in high performance as an athlete and a coach and their experiences are amazing and they get to share those key things with me and I learn vicariously by, by having those conversations and they can they can point me in the right direction. But Having said that, I, I, I've mentioned to you uh, personally uh, in the last few weeks when we've had conversations is that I'm finishing a few projects at the moment and I'm going to spend the next few months sharpening the saw and getting back to uh, um, learning a few new things because I have uh, had my head down for probably two or three years now and I haven't really looked up enough. So I'm looking forward to uh, to, to getting back on, on, the, on the game again and learning some new stuff. Speaking of high-performance sports, um Nowadays, the skill set needed by a strength conditioning coach and sports scientist is pretty much increasing. And one of those skills is, uh, I will call it data literacy. Um, you know, what, what's your take on that? How important is that in, say, day-to-day, um, you know, tasks, uh, you know, in a life of a strength conditioning coach slash sports scientist? Yeah, look, I think that it depends on the environment a little bit. Um, in some of the large environments, such as, uh, I guess, your current role with Port Adelaide, what you have to make sure is that that knowledge exists within the team. If someone in the team can have very high levels of data literacy, then they can be the one that helps you solve problems and guides you to the right outcome using that, that data literacy. If you're, a, like I was, a, a lone cowboy, if you're the sports scientist and that's it, you're really at risk if you don't have some literacy yourself. Uh, you either need someone to do it for you and guide you, or you need to have that skill yourself. I don't think there's a, a middle ground. If you know nothing, uh, you're at the at the mercy of sometimes the pressure you might be under. Um, 
you might make a bad decision and you might be in the middle of an 80-hour week and, and something comes your way and you make a bad decision because you haven't got the capability to go away and figure it out. I think the industry now is very tough. It's a lot harder than when I was early in my career and there is a lot of sharks out there who are trying to sell you everything from uh, force plates to velocity training tools to GPS tools to monitoring software and it's really, really tough to know what's good and what's not and most sports, there are a few that have lots of money but most don't have money and so you need to be very careful about how you spend that money. I believe that the best use of money is to hire a person, uh, an intern or an assistant rather than spending $50,000 on a set of GPS units but um, it's uh, it's often a lot easier to convince your boss to hire some uh, to buy some technology than hire a person because it comes with all sorts of uh, associated problems like HR and and all that kind of thing. So I believe the data data literacy even at a low level helps you separate the wheat from the chaff. It helps you identify the things that could be worth spending your time on. And I have a very strong belief that you need to get information from your own environment. So it's all well and good to read the latest research, but almost all of it comes from either student populations because you have to control studies very well to get them published, and I don't think there's any relevancy to elite populations. And the other set of data is increasingly coming out of professional clubs. And for me, my day job revolves around Olympic sports, which is more of a campaign. You'll have a, a period of activity leading up to an Olympics, and then you'll have a rest. So you might have um, a five or six block of training and an event and then a rest and then another five or six week block of training and then an event and a rest. And it's different to the... Uh, professional sports where you have a match every week for 40 weeks a year and then an off-season. So uh, I think that you need to collect your own data, draw your own conclusions rather than adopting what you've read in the latest paper, even if it's a great paper and it produces some really great advice. You need to confirm that by collecting data yourself and, and making sure that it does apply to you. I think one of the, the, the final comments on that question is that um, – the industry is not changing. We're getting more and more data. We need to get used to that. Um, the Internet of Things and wearable tech and, is not changing. There's going to be more and more. So if you want to be a strength and conditioner who just walks the gym floor, um, your days are numbered because only in certain environments will those roles exist. Most people will be required to have a little bit more smarts about how they um, – manage data while they're walking the gym floor or how they manage the data while they're on the field with the athletes. And you might as well get used to it because uh, it's here to stay. Jobs are pretty hard to come by now. There's a lot of people out there looking for these jobs, and so some data literacy is, is going to be an essential skill that will, uh, um, will keep you in the game. You mentioned that uh, more and more data is being collected lately, and you know now we have um, you know big data, um, as a, as a hot word, um, and also this idea of data-driven management um, and data-driven decision-making. Uh, in your experience, what are the uh, issues you stumble upon um, setting up the, the you know, databases and you know, management solutions um, driven by the data? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think um, the lessons that I've learned in the in the, the last six years working in my job where I've had to be responsible for building tools like athlete management systems and so on has demonstrated that it is really difficult. 
and uh, there's lots of connected problems and the primary one is that the key stakeholders need to be up for it and so if you are working with coaches who aren't interested in managing athletes by data then it's always going to be difficult to convince them to use a system that that requires that so we um i think you have to be realistic about what you're expecting people to do the key the key thing really is that can you make the data useful I know some of the environments that I, I help support, such as rowing and cycling, there's a lot of information and there's a reasonable thirst and hunger for that data from both the athletes and the coaches. And so the concept works really well, whereas other sports don't quite have that. So it is a matter of trying to match that. Um, if, if a sport's not interested in it, then forcing them to be interested in it is hard. But the two key issues I see is that can you make it useful? Can you apply the data? And that comes down to a culture situation. Are coaches interested? Are athletes interested? Have you got the right people who can have conversations to uh, explain the data and, and, and make people think that uh, it's actually supportive and useful? Because I, I think it is. But the thing that I find the most interesting and that I enjoy a lot is integrating data. So not from a... Uh, data modeling or statistical perspective because I don't really have a, a strong skill set in that area but just being able to show people that here's your performance here's your training load here's the injury count here's the wellness data you know being able to combine that together and kind of like the whole dashboard concept where people are able to get a snapshot of where they're at um, without having to spend hours looking at something. And I really enjoy that aspect of, of creating tools for people that do so. And sometimes you're combining several technologies, such as an iPhone app is collecting the data, but Excel might be analysing it, and then importing it into a larger AMS tool, which is combining it with the medical data. You know, there's sometimes several steps, and that, that task of integrating things is, is a really interesting one. And the more data we get, the harder it is to integrate. So um, the, the technology that's coming out, when I'm making a decision about whether we should be buying it, the most important thing that I look at is can we integrate it? Can we export the data out somehow and pull it into a master system? And if we can't, then it's pretty hard sometimes to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to accept that and, and to tell the salesman that, yes, I'll take one. You know, it's... Um, it's to me the critical element. I I agree completely. Um, I'm currently trying to uh, build a web app, um, and as I said, uh, and as actually as you said, um, I've been approached with some some of the vendors um, as well to to give a review on their product. And the first thing I ask is, you know, how easy it is to export the data? I most of them are. Supporting, you know, Excel export and uh, comma-separated values export. Uh, but as you said, everyone uh, is building their own uh, athlete management software where they integrate uh, numerous data feeds in into one um, visual management. So if you, for each of those tools and, and software, you need to manually export data and then import in, in, in your system, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of clicks and a lot of work. Uh, where the, the software uh, now should be uh, able to automatically export the data or to, to softwares to communicate via you know, certain channels or APIs, 
Um, and I believe that, you know, exporting in compost separated values is a nice feature to have, but it's pretty much uh, a thing of, of past. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, uh, it's, at least it's something, but it's not good enough. I think uh, having an API or having d- direct connection tools is, is really um, where, where things need to go, whether it's a technology or, or a piece of software, it needs to be able to do that. And um, one of the one of the tools that I use at the moment is um, is really about making those connections easier. And every every week and every month, there's new connections available, which shows that the vendors are working together to allow um, allow those kinds of things to happen. So I think it's a really important direction that that hardware and software tools take. I guess also the, the vendors of those small tools such as, you know, wellness apps and things like that are, um, are wasting their effort pretty much in, in um, providing dashboards in their own system because no one's going to watch that. Every, as you said, everybody wants to export data and integrate it to, to create one, one you know, uh, dashboard hub or, or um, you know, visual management uh, so all those feed comes together. So if, if one small feed... Is actually doing dashboards for only this tiny amount of data. It's just a waste of you know development time and resources that could be uh, used in uh, developing the you know connectivity. And th- this is a, a, a million dollar um, <laughs> uh, tip actually for software vendors. So that that's something to think about. Yeah, I think though that um, if you consider someone like Polar who have two markets, one market is regular people who buy a polar watch and they use it for running or cycling or something like that. And then there's another market, which is athletes who use the team systems to uh, monitor, you know, Manchester United or someone. That market's actually really small compared to the consumer market. And so that's why polar spend all their time making software for uh, regular people rather than for teams. And so I guess the same concept can be applied to uh, an app builder. They might be able to sell more uh, subscriptions by targeting the lower end of the market where you're looking at a high school or a college team who doesn't have a big AMS system and probably never will have. And so to have those dashboards inside the app might actually be useful for that market and they might be able to do the do the numbers and say, actually, this is where we need to spend our time, whereas people like you and I who are working in um, – organized professional environments where there are AMS systems, we might be the minority. Um, I agree with you completely that I wouldn't be wasting my time on those apps um, and having all the internal analysis and dashboard options, but for 90% of their market, maybe that's exactly what they want. So I can understand that, that these companies do it because it makes the product easier to sell, and at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to sell to be able to make, uh, uh, make ends meet and, and keep the app going. So you've got to do what you've got to do in business, don't you? Exactly, which brings me to another topic, which is uh, pretty much aligned with this one, uh, is this... Uh I would say trade-off between complexity um, and simplicity, uh, if that makes sense. So uh, it's really hard to suit everyone's needs. Um, so if you make software really, really flexible, that that necessarily impose that uh, uh, that the user must spend some time learning it and you know developing and customizing it for their own needs, uh, which makes uh, you know also the development um, of the software more complicated. And more involved, uh, where if you make it more simpler, um, it's easier to use, but then everybody wants to have something 
slightly different and what would be what would be your uh, tip for software vendors when it comes to this particular issue yeah, that's, that's been my life for the last six or seven years is that um, I work in an environment where we have about 15 different and the strength and conditioning staff for all of those sports have different requirements and so you can decide that you're going to help all of them and you get the software customized and built so that there's a special area for the rowing strength and conditioning coaches and there's another special area for the team sport coaches but what you end up with is a massive mess and something that's impossible to to um, to really have work efficiently and so my my current philosophy is that people need their own working tools that suit how they operate and provide them with the information that they need but that some amount of their tool needs to be able to connect to a larger tool so the software tools that I'm most proud of are the ones that are very simple and they only pull in the simple information and the key summary information from each individual that's using the tool. They don't try and be the master that has every bit of information possible because the complexity uh, gets too high. I think what you want to have is, is that summary overview and a software tool that allows you to do that. And each individual user, the physio, the doctor, the strength and conditioning coach, they can have specific tools that do what they want. And so to have people on staff like myself or like you who can make a, a not perfect but a very nice customized tool for one person, that uh, allows that person to be very happy and to do their job well. And as long as the summary information can be absorbed into a, a simple, larger system, then I think that's the best outcome. And um, we've spent a lot of money trying to make the perfect model, and I don't think it exists. I think you're uh, looking for the holy grail, and it, and it actually doesn't exist. And you spend a lot of money and a lot of time to come to that conclusion, and you wish you, you, wish you hadn't. You mentioned that you're kind of like using novel tools and new technologies, um, such as you know, R, Python, you know, Power BI, Tableau, and, and such. Um, you know, what, what would you recommend learning at this stage or what would be the skill to have in, in the, I would say, years or months in IT to come? Yeah, uh, I thought about this, this uh, question a little bit and I, I think that there's two, there's two different agendas. One agenda is that um, if you work in something like Excel, what you learn is concepts. And those concepts are that if you've got a data set, you need to arrange it in a certain way to make it easy to work with and analyze. And once you understand that, that concept, then you work with another software tool that's going to apply the same principles. And so I, I believe that if you work with a tool like Excel, that's what you can develop. You need to have column headings. You need to have rows. You need to use analysis formula or pivot tables and so every piece of software or any analytic piece of software is going to have those capabilities. They might not be called pivot tables, they'll be called something else and so Excel is great because it's pretty much free and it's everywhere and so to learn it to me makes a lot of sense because you can understand concepts of how to work with data. But the second um, uh, thing that you need to, I think, understand also is that you either want to be able to code or you want to be able to config. And so I work with 
both tools. Power BI is a Microsoft offering now that's free, and that's mostly config. You're just dragging and dropping elements of um, like little building blocks onto a canvas and things are, are happening for you. Whereas R is about understanding what you want and writing some code. I think those two, the combination of those two things is important. So whether you're learning R or Python probably doesn't matter. Or even VBA inside Excel is, is, is also a code language. And if you learn a little bit of code, it helps you with your understanding. Um, if you learn a lot of code, you can do amazing things. But um, for most people, that's going to be beyond them. And so I think their effort is is wisely spent on software tools that allowed, allow you to just configure. And so that might be Google Sheets, it might be Excel, it might be Power BI, um, and, and there are other tools out there probably too. If you're a Mac user, it might be Numbers. But what you want to develop a skill in is that whatever's going to be most useful to you right now. Um, if you want to protect yourself against changes in the market in the future, I think you need to understand a little bit about writing code and a little bit about configuring software. And so um, software is going to be all about config in the, in the future, I think. I don't think you're going to need to be an expert at writing code in the future because you'll be able to write a plain language query and the computer will write the code for you. That's my guess, um, that artificial intelligence and things like that will get better and better. And so the key will be understanding software. How do you configure it? How do you make it work? And um, the software will be able to do it all for you if you can articulate your your questions well. I think that Power BI already have a feature uh, such as uh, uh, as that. So you you pretty much use a natural language and say, uh, you know, what's the training load? Per player per week, and the Power BI might actually understand it and create that yeah, chart. That, that's true, and and the the critical bit behind that is that as long as you've configured your data set properly, so if you've configured your data set and set things up properly, then you can write those plain language queries. And I think that's going to be a really common feature of software um, in the future, and it'll be even more so because tools like Siri on your iPhone will connect to your Power BI tools, so you can just simply talk to your computer and ask it questions, and it will be able to produce that. But only if, and this is the critical bit, only if you've configured it correctly. And so um, I've made so many mistakes over the years in terms of not configuring it and had to go back and redo it so that my queries work, that um, you learn your lessons and you, you get better and better at, at figuring out how to set up your data sets and how to um, define your criteria. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. John, let's uh, wrap this interview quickly. Um, a couple of questions left. Um, what what are the current projects you're working on? I've got a really cool one going at the moment. I'm about halfway through a project with a guy called Rob Carroll. He is known as the video analyst. He um, he works in a in another area of sports science, which is also my passion, which is performance analysis. So um, we're making a just an Excel course. It's a series of videos. There'll probably be about 15 hours worth of videos where performance analysts who who work with rugby or, or cricket or or soccer or football or whatever you call it um, can, can learn about um, how to set up their data sets and, and create some, some tools for themselves. I don't believe that the current um, concept of using tools like ProZone is good. Um, 
that's just scratching the surface to find out how many shots and passes and tackles. I think the really subjective stuff is the key. And so that requires you to make your own tools and, and do your own coding. So that's, uh, that's something that's really cool. And it's a little bit different to the training load and wellness stuff that I've been, um, hammering away at for, for two or three years. So that's, uh, probably one more month worth of work before I've got that finished. Sounds like an interesting project. Indeed. Yeah, and it's different. I do like that a lot, and you've got to keep yourself doing different projects, and that's something that uh, um, is a little bit off the, the normal routine for me. There was an interesting, um, um, not paper, but an article regarding the uh, performance uh, measures. Uh, say in soccer, uh, the common performance measure was um, a possession or number of passes, and it was shown that some of the teams that are um, pretty much winning, say Brazil against Germany, uh, yeah, Brazil against Germany, when they won seven-one, if I remember correctly, uh, the possession was pretty much similar or number of passes. And now they are coming out with a, with a, a metric that might be more uh, actually uh, interesting or m might be more revealing in terms of who is playing a, a bit more dominant uh, soccer. Um, so again, it, it comes back to figuring out your own metrics and, and, and something that you know that you're actually using in practice. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, my, I think my best Excel project that I've ever made is um, is one that does exactly that. It's about eight years now. The New Zealand women's field hockey team. I worked with their coach eight years ago to come up with a tool that. Um, his analyst does all the coding, so it takes about five hours to code a game, but it's very, very specific. The players help decide what their key metrics should be, and the coach added weightings to them, and over about three years they refined it, and now they have a, a working tool that um, evaluates performance exactly how they believe it should be evaluated. And the downside is that if that coach leaves, the system's probably no good anymore but um, right now it is fantastic and it's taken a lot of work and effort but it, it's actually providing really useful information based upon how the athletes and coaches perceive their performance should be evaluated and I, I really like that. You already mentioned that you don't read much, <laughs> you pretty much, you, 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 you solve the problems, uh, that's how you learn but usually I finish podcast by asking um, about the suggested um, resources that, that you uh, recommend uh, for, for the listeners, such as books, websites, um, and, and similar. So what, what would you recommend for, for the average S&C coach and uh, sports scientist? Like what would be your go-to resources? Look, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I consider it a weakness of mine that I don't read much, but I, I really uh, have, have benefited a lot over the years just by doing. So I, I like to create projects and use them as a, a learning vehicle and then try and research the ways to complete that project. And that often requires me to read. It often requires me to go to YouTube and um, read, uh, you know, and read some pod, uh, read some uh, Twitter feeds and, and things like that. And, and so I do follow Twitter a lot and it, it in equal amounts disappoints me and impresses me. So I read that article that you just mentioned about Brazil versus Germany 
simply because it was linked on Twitter. So I, I, I think it's a, a wonderful resource, but it's also a terrible resource for young strength and conditioners because um, it gives you an inferiority complex. It makes you believe that what everyone's talking about is actually happening everywhere and that you should be doing it. And if you're not, you're doing yourself a disservice. And I think that's really tough. I think that there's so much out there that you could be doing that it's, it's distracting. So for me, the... Um, the free resources that are available on, on Twitter now, links to videos of conferences, uh, links to papers and so on are wonderful and there's all the information you need there but uh, I've been fortunate throughout my career to be exposed to people and like I say, my working environment day to day is with 100 people who are all smarter than me and so I get the opportunity to ask them questions and, and, and learn from their environment having been an Olympic gold medalist or having been a gold medal winning coach um, and uh, so it's, it's working with good people and, and engaging with them which I think is the, is the best learning tool but failing that it's creating a hunger by using free tools such as YouTube, such as Twitter. And if you can't get what you need off those, then often you can go to a website such as lynda.com or Udemy and buy a, a $10 course on Python. That'll be a fantastic way to get yourself started or even go online to Coursera or one of the, the MOOCs and do a, um, a data, data analytics course for free from Stanford University. You know, there's, there's no need to be spending thousands of dollars on this stuff. The critical and the most um, important and precious resource is time. And so people need to be very aware that if you spend all day reading and, and doing um, doing research, then you need to complement that with actually a whole lot of doing. So um, uh, selectively finding opportunities to use a project or a problem to go and research a certain area is, is, my, uh, is my advice. Simply in this world, we're, we're too busy and there's a lot of divorced strength and conditioning coaches out there because they're obsessed with learning and they're wanting to be better all the time, which is admirable, but um, life is also pretty wonderful. So you do have to uh, step back a bit sometimes and, and, uh, and realize that there's more going on. Uh, that's definitely something I'm actually struggling with, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I guess, you know, a lot of colleagues pretty much same. As you said, it's uh, all these resources is becoming pretty much distracting, so you don't know where to start, and um, pretty much you need to get back to the basics and uh, you know do stuff. Pretty much you know be there where, where the rubber meets the road. Um, and also the funny thing is that uh, we have this guru um, idea of, of you know people on Twitter or, or big clubs that are you know. Uh, being covered by uh, good marketing and then you believe that you know magic is happening there and then you actually go there and see it's not uh, and I w one of the things I suggest to, to younger coaches is actually seeking out coaches who are willing actually to to let them in and to actually see what's being done and how far is that from from some you know platonistic ideal uh, you know of, of sports science or whatever that's right. I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about the whole guru element of the world. I've, um, this is one of the first times I've, I've had my own name against some of my work. I prefer just to hide behind the, uh, um, the pseudonym of Excel Tricks for Sports rather than be a person because suddenly when you're a person, people want you to, um, uh, want you to have an opinion. And for me, that, um, that's where it does get tricky, you know. When you start getting followers, you, you, you feel the pressure to, um, to produce wisdom and, and 
it's when you suddenly start looking for things that aren't there. I think the best thing you can do is watch people. And we talked a couple of times about the All Blacks, and I know they've got two or three staff. One of them, um, Nick Gill, is their strength and conditioning coach. And if you have a conversation with him, you'll you'll walk away realizing that doing the simple things well is uh, is the secret to his success. And and as you said, he could possibly be the most successful um, strength and conditioning coach in the world because he works with uh, with a team like the All Blacks. And so it's nice to hear those stories sometimes rather than that uh, there's some magic happening behind the scenes. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks a lot for the great answers and uh, tremendous tips. Um, and I wish you all the best and I wish uh, all the luck for New Zealand on upcoming Olympic Games. No, fantastic. It's been a pleasure and hopefully I didn't talk too much, but uh, um, it's nice to have conversations with uh, with people and share information with people in the industry because it's, uh, it's a wonderful world of sports science that we work in. Thanks a lot, John, and enjoy the rest of the day. See you later. Thank you. To the kicks and the